0: This is a Crestview Bible Podcast. For more information, visit CrestviewHutch.org. I don't think we could do a series on responding to suffering and fail to mention a MAD TV skit where Bob Newhart played a therapist. So many of you have maybe seen this clip online. Here's how the skit went. Uh, Newhart's character is called Dr. Switzer, and he's talking to someone named Catherine. And so in the middle of the conversation, he says, tell me about the problem that you wish to address. And Catherine says, oh, okay, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. I just start thinking about being buried and I want to I begin to panic. And Dr. Switzer says, has anyone ever tried to bury you alive in a box? No, no. But truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. Uh, so what you're saying is you're claustrophobic. Yes, yes, that's it. All right, well, let's go, Catherine. I'm going to say two words to you right now. I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them into your life. Shall I write them down? No. If it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. We find most people can remember them. Okay. You said, Are you ready? Yes. Okay, here they are. Stop it. (laughs) She said, I'm sorry. Stop it. Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So what are you saying? And Dr. Switzer, Newhart's character, says, you know, it's funny. I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. Should I, so I should just stop it. And there you go. I mean, you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds frightening. It is. Then stop it. So, I mean, the skit, I mean, it's a five minute skit that goes on from there. So there's a part at the beginning about how you pay for it and a part at the end about that. And he, he concludes the whole skit by saying, stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box. <laughs> so that's the, whole, that's the whole skit. Um, but you get the point, uh, you get the point. And sometimes we think about that in suffering. We, we think about people who are going through hard circumstances. And I think we just have this inclination that somebody needs to come along to them and say, stop it, stop thinking that way. Um, and so we're in this series in the book of Job where we're thinking about coming alongside those who are suffering in the church and we're pointing them to Jesus. And I mention the skit because I don't think it's, it's not only how I think Job's friends are perceived, But unfortunately, I I even think that God, sometimes we think that God is responding to Job with a curt kind of get in line kind of attitude. And we ought to know, like if we've read the Bible at all, we've taken it seriously at all, that God's response to those who are hurting is consistently full of grace and mercy. I mean, there are just maybe very few times where God comes alongside those who are suffering and hurting and like makes matters worse. Um, so it's, it's really interesting that we think that way about how God's acting. We, we like to envision Job 38 to the end of the book as God finally comes and puts the smack down on this thing. God's kind of, hey, stop it. You know, quit all this mouthing. Um, and uh, we, love, we love that idea about God as long as we're not the ones who are raw and vulnerable, Right? So if I'm the one going through suffering, man, I want God to be gracious and loving to me. But if someone else is going through suffering, I want God to come put the smack down and stop this madness, right? So uh, we, we, want, uh, we want God to immediately change others and yet you know, we don't realize what he's at work doing. So we have some work to do in these next two weeks as we wrap up this book and make sense of God's response to Job. And so just as we're getting into this, what kind of reminders do you think God would grasp or God would give to those who are going through suffering? What what truths is he hoping that they would grasp? What do you think God would be appealing to them to say? What what do you think God would say to someone who's forgotten who he is or forgotten how he acts in the world? Um, Maybe you think God would just come along and say, stop it, I'm the God of the universe, get in line, Um, demanding this. Or does God showcase patience? Does he reveal himself in his ways so that people are brought near and return to him? So that's what we have to consider in these coming weeks, these next two weeks. And to state it clearly, God's response to sinners and sufferers is gracious and it is effective. So we've been talking about that a lot of this journey, like what would it look like to come alongside someone who's hurting in a gracious and effective way? And I think God's our perfect example of what that looks like. He proves in these passages that we're going to see that he is the wonderful counselor. He proves this, and he comes near to any who seek him. I mean, this is what we should draw from this. You might think, well, if you knew how I was languishing, God hasn't come through. I would say based on the testimony of Job, he will come through. God will come through. He's not going to leave you languishing. You seek him with all your heart, he's going to come after you. He's not going to leave you languishing there. Now it may be that our timetable isn't the same as God's because this obviously, God's waiting a long time. We've had to endure a lot in this book. And if you've tried to read the book of Job on your own, there is a lot of chapters here and a lot of blabbering about suffering and what's going on that gets us to God speaking. So God's long suffering, he's patient. I mean, calling God long suffering is sometimes the suffering is long um, to get to the essence of God's long suffering. And so that's where we're headed today. And I don't want to get too preachy yet because we've got lots to do. Um, so join me as we see three reminders from God's gracious speech to those in suffering. Three reminders here. And let's read uh, just verses 1 to 3 as a way to begin. This is how the speech begins. So read verses 1 to 3 with me and then we'll get into it. So beginning in chapter 38, verse 1, here's what we read. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said... Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. So, this is God's word. Thanks be to God. Three reminders from God's gracious speech to those in suffering. And first of all, really, what's going on in chapter 38 is that God reminds us that he governs the universe. God reminds us that he governs the universe. And I'm, I'm wanting you to hold out the idea. I want, you, I want you to be curious and just consider this idea that God is being gracious. Now we read these opening verses of what I just read. You might say, that doesn't sound like God's being very gracious at all. In fact, I even have to be careful how I read that because I can read it in a way that sounds like God's putting the smack down. Like, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I'll question you and you'll make it you're known to me. I mean, I can even read it in such a way that it sounds like God's putting the smack down. And I really don't think that's what God's doing here. Um, so we got to dig into this. God reminds us that he governs the universe. And so what we've seen from chapter 3, remember chapters 1 and 2 were the narrative that we saw the situation of what happened to Job. From chapter 3 on, every time there's a new speaker that's come into the, to to weigh in, it's been introduced with the same formula. And blank answered and said... That's how everybody was introduced. And Job answered and said, and Eliphaz answered and said, and Elihu answered and said. That's how every speech has been given. And now it's in the same way in chapter 38, verse one, look at how the formula is there. Then the Lord answered and said, so God's entering into the discussion in a way that he sees fit. He's coming in and his his way of speaking is entirely understandable to Job. So, God's going to pepper Job with many questions, and everything God asks to him is going to be easy for Job to respond to the same way. And here's the answer to the questions that God's asking Job The answer is only you, Lord, only you understand or control that part of the world. That's the answer to the question. Only you, only you understand or control that part of the world. He also answers Job out of the whirlwind, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Out of the whirlwind. Now, on one level, that surely speaks of his power, that God is in the whirlwind, right? It's certainly kind of, a, kind of a slow flex. I mean, in the weight room, we might call that like a tricep flex. Most guys aren't flexing their triceps, but some are, and it's kind of a subtle flex. Um, so some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, and that's great. <laughs> when you think about someone flexing, usually you think like this. You don't think of someone going, boom, and popping it. Uh, and that's kind of what, that's what I think is going on here with God speaking to Job out of the whirlwind. It's kind of a subtle flex of God's power. Not many of us can speak out of the whirlwind. Most of us are in hiding, unless we're in Kansas watching that on our porch, right? So most of us are in hiding. But God's speaking out of the whirlwind. He's writing it, almost so to speak. He's flexing and it's showing his power. But if you look at all the numerous references in the Old Testament where God speaks out of a storm. I mean, if you just took all those passages and lined them all up, a lot of times God's showing up to do battle and to rescue his people out of the storm. I mean, think about the disciples with Jesus in the boat. I mean, Jesus is showing up in the storm. Like even in one narrative, he's coming across. That's when Peter walks on water. Um, you know, Jesus is coming across. And why is Jesus entering the storm? He's coming there to rescue his people. He's coming there to set things straight. He's gonna speak out of this. He's gonna do battle and come to the aid of his people. And so it's good news for Job. It's good news for people like us that know the Bible who have read all these stories about God speaking out of the storm or God speaking out of the whirlwind. We know God's showing up to do battle for his people. He's coming to their help. He's coming to aid them. It's good news for us. God is ready. When God speaks out of the whirlwind, we know God's here to help us. He's not being elusive. He's coming to help. And so let's continue to think about God's tone and his nearness in these first three verses. In verse two, we see even more encouragement about God coming near. Um, Who is this that darkens counsel? So darkening God's counsel. It isn't so much that God's frustrated with Job, but he's directly answering Job's chief concern, which has been, for all these chapters, Job's chief concern has been, how is God running the universe? He's got questions about how God's governing the universe. Here's how one scholar put it. The incredible gentleness and graciousness of God with his traumatized servant in this initial question is very striking. We can hear God's question as if he were asking, Job, when you criticize me so viciously, did you really know what you were talking about? So this is an extraordinarily mild way to respond to someone who's portrayed God as attacking him viciously and for no reason. Job has alleged that God's using him for target practice that God's gnashing his teeth at him, that God is slashing his kidneys open, that God's grabbing him by the neck and slamming him to the ground. If you want proof that that's what Job said, look at Job 16 verses seven through 19. So God could have probably been a lot harsher with Job, but he responds with a gentle question. Are you sure you got the facts right when it comes to how I govern the universe? That's the appeal he's making. That's what it means to darken his counsel. It's, it's saying, like, do you really understand what's going on here? So, you know, we, we expect God to be much harsher with Job. Like, who is this who's railed against me so foolishly? How dare you, you pond scum? Get on your knees and apologize like a man. You know, like, that's, what, that's how we almost read this. And that's not what God's saying at all. It's not what he's doing at all. The Lord instead treats his servant entirely gracious uh, with, with much grace. Graciously throughout this opening question. And throughout these three chapters, this is the attitude that God's gonna maintain towards Job. Um, Here's another insight from another scholar. Even in his introduction, God's showing Job that he's more profoundly good and gentle than Job has given him credit for. Remember that Job feared that God might so terrify him that he would not even be able to speak. That was Job nine. Or that God would overwhelm him with impossible questions. That's chapter nine, verse three. And none of that happens. Job's encounter with the Almighty is going to be much happier than Job ever imagined. And perhaps happiest of all is the obvious fact that when God appears, he doesn't accuse Job of a single sin that would explain his suffering. Not even a hint of condemnation from the Almighty is uttered. Right from the start, God is communicating that he is not angry. So to to appreciate how much this would have meant to Job, Remember that Job's deepest fear and pain and all of his losses, the sharpest pain that drove all of his long criticisms of God was the thought that he had lost God's friendship and he had lost God's favor and he didn't even know why. Despite the foolish things Job has said, Job's consistent desire has been to meet with God. If I could just see him, if I could just have that closeness again. And God is going to fulfill that desire without crushing or berating or blasting Job. None of Job's fears are going to be realized as he encounters God. And it's gonna end with joys Job never imagined. And when we get to chapter 42, we're gonna, our jaws are gonna be on the floor. Like we're gonna be having to think like, do I need to rethink my theology here? I mean, is God really this good? (laughs) I mean, this is how mind blowing it is that God's coming near. So with all this tone and nearness, we turn to God's speech. And uh, you might see this in your notes. This is great. Uh, this is something I'm really excited about to preach on. Job 38 uh, verses four through 11, where we see God diapering, God diapering. So let's get at what, what I'm talking about. So in these opening questions, God's asking, uh, let me read verses four through 11. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who, me- who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its darkness and thick... Sorry, I can't talk today. When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, This far you shall come and no further. And here you here shall your proud waves be stayed. So in these opening in these opening verses here of this it's when I was making the world and determining how it was going to function, where were you? I mean, this is just a general question. Where were you? And I think any of us reading that is like, well, I wasn't there. <laughs> um, I wasn't with you. And so God's going after our hearts. So he's going after our hearts so that we can realize we have such a limited perspective on God's world, that there's so much that Job does not and cannot understand, which only God sees clearly. And that's the case for us too. There's so much that we don't understand that only God can see clearly. And are we cool with that? Are we good with that? That God can govern the universe and it's just fine with us. Um, So it's amazing. God's also helping Job to see the goodness in the world that he's made, and the good God who designed it and rules it in this way. So God's goodness is even seen when it comes to Job. When God says, tell me if you know, surely you know, he's not like saying, come on, you smart to think you know all the answers? Tell me. No, it's almost like that teacher who's saying, come on, you guys know this. Come on, tell me. You know. What's one plus one? Right, you don't have to know Common Core to figure that one out. <laughs> What's one plus one? You can do this. And we're all just like, uh, it's too, right, right. So he's just excited. He's like that elementary school teacher that's excited at those insights. He's just happy that Job's getting it. That's, that's God's attitude here. He's not trying to s- s- clobber him in a debate. He's just saying, help me, you know this. You weren't there. You know how the, you know, when the angels are singing for glory at what I've made, where were you? You weren't there, it's okay. Tell me, you know the answer to this. And so I'm belaboring all this point because I think too many of us read this ending of Job and we don't find encouragement in it because we think God is ready to lecture us as we're going through suffering. And that's the wrong reading of the text, I think. God's not out to humiliate Job. He's not out to put the smack down on him. God's not like holding up the universe and saying, how you like them apples? You know, like, look at what I've done. You got this kind of resume? That's not how God's acting. He's holding up these examples from creation. It's the same thing, we we know this, like um, no one has ever been one to Christ arguing in old internet chat rooms, back when those existed, remember that? We'd get on there and defend the faith because we were so valiant. No one was ever one to Christ, it was just arguing, just nothing crazy. And God's just infinitely wiser than the ways of this world. He longs for his people to know nearness to him. So the diapering part Look at verses 8-11 through when it comes to the sea I thought this was such a fun image For younger parents or those who were thinking about being younger parents um, Persevering through this part of life In Job 38-9 God cares for the waters like a squealing infant So can you imagine God singing to the chaotic, chaotic waters of the sea a lullaby And telling them he's just cooing the sea And he's rocking it to sleep That's kind of the imagery that we're given there, right? And God's destru- describing the restrictions that he places on the chaotic sea as a diaper. You know, like I'm diapering the sea. I've, I've wrapped swaddling bands around it so it goes this far and no further. It's so gentle. It's such a nurturing image. Why would God come out of the gate like that with that kind of image? Oh, you know all about the sea, right, Job? Like how it's rocking and tumultuous and I just wrap it up with a diaper and, and coo, it, coo it to sleep, make it go down. I mean, Who is like our God? I mean, isn't this incredible? God's perfectly able to trample the raging waters when he needs to, but look at the kind goodness of God. If he treats raging waters like this, like if he treats raging waters like a wailing infant, how's he gonna treat you and me when we're going through suffering? Then there's another unusual aspect in verses eight through 11 that deepens our appreciation of God's goodness. The waves in verse 11, they're called proud. Thus far you have come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. They're proud waves. So it's it's telling us that even as God gently nurtures the sea, it continues to resist him and rebel. I mean, you've all had that with a newborn child, right? That you've changed the diaper and you're holding them and they're just squealing to be in their arms. They're just like, you know stiffening their back, and they're not going to give. And so, again, God's calming that, even with the rebelling. If God treats rebellious waters this way, does his goodness really know any bounds? I mean, isn't this how kind and good he is? Aren't you getting the picture? This is meant to be an encouraging picture for us. That God's saying, like, I'm treating waters this way. I'm going to care for you. So, and like, even though God's not directly addressing the friends here, we shouldn't miss how different this picture of God and the world and his world is from the ones that his friends imagined. Those friends, they were saying that um, it's just like dominoes falling when it comes to how God governs the world. You do bad things, God sends bad things your way. That's how it works. And this is telling us an entirely different thing. The sea, with all of its chaos and madness that God's just cooing and diapering and singing a lullaby and calming. And even when it proudly stiffens its back to resist his ways, he's gentle and he's overcoming that. I mean, what a God we have. This is God's grace. He, he cares for us in astonishing ways. So from here, we need to get moving, I know. I just wanted, I think right at the outset, these pictures are in place to set us up for what comes in these coming chapters. That God's not angry. He's not like ready to put the smack down. He's he's, uh, showing us the kind of God that he is. That he runs the universe in a unique way. And so, uh, beginning in verse 12, we see how he manages light and darkness, weather and stars. Let me read there down to verse 38, beginning in verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. Come on, tell me. You know. Where is the way to the dwelling place of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory? and that you may discern the paths of its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I've reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed and where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who's cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is? on the desert where there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make ground sprout with grass? Has the reign of Father, who has begotten the the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who's given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heaven of the heavens? Can you establish the rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts and given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? So... We see God's governing creation and he's governing it in ways that are good. So that's the first part of his speech. Like I said, we've got so much to do in this passage. So let me move right into the second point. So this is gonna be blank number two in your notes in verses 38, 39 to 40, verse two. We're given more reminders as God reminds us that he governs the creatures of creation. So he not only governs the universe, but now we're getting into the animal kingdom. Um, the wild kingdom. And we see God's fantastic governing of that. So look at the description of lions and mountain goats and donkeys and ox beginning in verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in the thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know what the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong and grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pastures, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with the ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great, and will you leave him leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? So in all these illustrations, he's not, he's not inviting Job, hey, you ought to consider a change in careers and go work at a zoo. You know, that, that's not the point that he's trying to make. He's asking Job, can you just pause long enough to see that there may be things in my creation that you haven't considered? That's the point he's getting at. And the fact that these are called like wild ox or wild donkeys or mountain goats is saying, these are things that don't need any human, that I can just take care of. And by the way, uh, the fact that lions have prey means that there's suffering out there in the animal kingdom too that we can't explain, and yet God's in control of it. Are we going to trust Him? So this is the point that, that God's making, and he's drawing us out so gently. He's saying, hey, look at the animal kingdom. But let's keep going. So we, got, we can see ostrich and war, ho, war horse and hawk, beginning in verse 13, and we'll come and say a word about ostriches, because they're pretty interesting. Uh, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are, the, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them that the wild beasts may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? This is the war horse. Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paused in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He can't stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha, he smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? I guess in Hutch it would be the tree buzzards, right? How do they do their thing? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. So, just, I mean, thank you for this tour of Mutual of Omaha's wild kingdom here. I mean, this is, Wild, what is God doing? Well, the ostrich is a great example of here of like what we're seeing so much in all the creation among the animals that Job doesn't understand. So the point is the world is much vaster and far stronger than Job's recognized. There's much he doesn't know. And so this means that Job is not in a position to draw sweeping generalizations about God that he has. He's made some conclusions about God that aren't fair. Job can't prove that God has been bungling his role as a sovereign of the universe because there's so much in the universe that he doesn't understand. He simply doesn't have enough evidence. So this is clear with all these unexplored dimensions of the earth, like 38, 4 to 7 or 38, 16 to 24. And the ostrich, the ostrich exposing her eggs to danger, but she's unafraid before humans. I mean, it's... If Job can't even understand how ostriches work, what makes him so confident that he can penetrate God's plan for guiding the entire universe and demonstrate that God is not a fair ruler? So, and God doesn't ask Job to just take this on faith. So any can, anyone can reflect on, it's for, available for anyone. Anyone can reflect on the vast dimensions of creation and the strange creatures that live in creation. So God, this is God's, again, his gentle way. He's not saying, hey, just trust me on this. He's saying, look, you know there's ostriches on the earth. How they're acting, I mean, really, I'm governing this. Um, So God's gently reminding Job of a truth that he's been obscuring, which is potentially available to anyone. I thought there was one quote in particular from a scholar that, that points this to the reality of our pain. Here's what it says. Pain has a way of pulling us into ourselves. And deep pain can completely color and distort our view of the world. We can feel as if we're finally seeing the horrible truth about living in God's world. And the frightening conclusions that start to occur to us can feel unanswerable. We start to think of ourselves. So this is what God's really like. And more than a few of Job's speeches can be read that way. So one application for us in this speech is that no matter how unanswerable our dark suspicions about God feel, no matter how certain we think we are, we are not in a position to draw those conclusions. We just do not know enough. So the first step, the first stage of Job's reconciliation and restoration to God has to do with the profound limits of his grasp on the world. Now I know a lot of you didn't say, you mean I woke up in early. I woke er, up early on daylight savings time starting for you to tell me that I don't have all this figured out. Right, right, that's the point. That's the point of Job 38 to 40. That aren't there things that you just don't know? So just be careful at raising your fist at God and saying, how dare you govern the universe this way? God's gently saying, hey, if you don't even understand how ostriches work, really? I mean, just be careful, be patient. So having laid out all this, we turn to chapter 40 and God asks if there are any more questions. So again, God's kindness, right? God says, hey, I'm laying out my case here. This is how I govern the universe. I'm governing, I'm governing the universe. I'm governing its creatures in this way. There's stuff you don't know and you know the answer to that. You know is that only you, Lord, know the answers to these things. And yet, look at how God responds in chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. In other words, God's open to more. God's open to more if Job has anything to offer. And this leads to our third and final reminder where God gently reminds us of our smallness so just verses 3 to 5 this is Job's response to the first speech verses 3 to 5 kind of crazy stuff then Job answered the Lord and said behold I am of small account what shall I answer you I lay my hand on my mouth I've spoken once and I will not answer twice but I will proceed no further so in response Job is starting to get it Um, but it still feels rather cold. Um, It's nice to know that there's stuff in creation we don't understand that doesn't give us a lot of comfort when it comes to our entire families died in a tragedy and natural disasters have hit and I was inflicted with debilitating illness for a season. So it's nice to go look at creation and realize my smallness, but it's, it's still, there's still more that we need to know. So Job is not just needing a deeper appreciation of, like I said, Mutual of Omaha's wild kingdom. He's not just needing to take the afternoon at the Hutchinson Zoo and all of his problems are going to go away. Um, he's wanted this closeness to God all along. And so he responds to God. And he resta- he begins by placing his hand over his mouth. Now, we all know it's a great idea to be slow to speak. We know that's wisdom, right? To be slow to speak, slow to wrath. But it's so difficult to do this. And so physically putting his hand over his mouth is, a, is Job's way, I think, of just saying, I know my place. And before something slips out, I just don't want to do it again. You know, he's just putting his hand over his mouth. And he also chooses silence. He's spoken, but he's not going to keep it up. In a, in a sense, you could say that, um, like you've seen this on TV, I'm yielding the balance of my time to the floor, which God has, <laughs> right? You have the floor. You're doing just well. I'm trucking with everything that you're saying, God. And so I'm not going to interrupt this. I'm yielding the rest of my time. You just keep rolling. And that's what God's going to do in verse Six right the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said so he's still speaking to his troubles that's where we're going to pick up next week but in this opening speech Job is reminded of his smallness so the application then um, again I don't want to overstate this but one application that we have to come with as we're wrestling through suffering is humility. humility there's so much in the world that we don't know we don't know the whole story on So we need to keep working through all the implications. We need to keep sweeping away all the half-truths about God that we know and listen to the questions of Job 38 to 39 until we can see them, until we can see him in a new light. So I think, yes, this is provoking humility. And some of you are like, I don't really feel this. Then keep resting in chapters 38 and 39. You respond to those questions. And um, God's kind to you. He's gentle. He's wanting you to see this, that he's God, you're not. Until we come to that basic realization. I mean, that's the first of the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Until we realize that God's going to run the universe, I'm not, then we're going to have Difficulty making headway through suffering, through anything in life. its The the poor in spirit is right where we need to be. Um, So linger there. And again, we've kind of sprinkled this stuff throughout the way. Maybe you're speaking to a suffering friend who's saying things like Job said. I think there's a right time and a right way to ask it. So you might say something like, I understand why you're saying these things about God but do they really bear up under scrutiny? Do you really know enough to say that? Could the kind of person that you're describing invent a sunset? So someone going through suffering saying, oh, God doesn't know what he's doing. I can't believe he'd do this. Yeah, is the person that you're describing someone who could just say, let there be a sunset and there be one? Or who could say, I want music to exist and it does or who could say light and there is that's what we have to come to terms with and it's bewildering or a lion you know like from the animal kingdom right or a lion how do we explain a lion I mean is the person that you're describing, could they just say lions exist? And, they're, and they are. So being reminded of our smallness is tricky in this world because there's so much in this world that appears to spin on us. That we're the center, we're the apex, the world's revolving around me. And out of the whirlwind, God is stepping into this and saying, could you just consider that the world revolves around me? and that even lions who are doing their thing, even ostriches, even mountain goats who are mating and having kids just being plopped up there. I guess kids is a real joke in goat world, isn't it? Uh, But isn't it the case that, you know, that God's allowing these mountain goats to have kids and, and there's no one there taking care of them except me. And yet you're saying the way I govern your life is suspect. So again, I want, I want to speak with gentleness because I think God is, uh, and I know there's people that are hurting and you're asking the question why. And I'm, I'm what I'm saying that this passage is driving us to is just to consider that there might be something about your suffering that you don't know. And do you trust God? Do you lean into him being big enough to take care of this? So in conclusion today, we've seen three reminders from God's gracious speech to those in suffering. God reminds us that he governs the universe. And on top of that, he governs the animal kingdom, the creatures of creation. And then God gently reminds us, I think, that we reach a conclusion that we're small compared to him. He reminds us of our smallness. So much like we see God speaking out of the whirlwind, we know that God came near to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God had a face and lived and walked in this world. Um, He became flesh and dwelt among us. The Bible tells us we're talking about the same person as God because in John 1, he was in the beginning with God and all things were made by him. That's who we're talking about when we're talking about Jesus. And in his life on earth, he was consistently gracious in his dealings with those in suffering. He would see someone and be moved with compassion to them. And, and when he saw them, he, he knew the suffering they were going through. He saw that and he would be moved with compassion to act towards them. He spoke out of the whirlwind. He demonstrated his sovereignty over storms. And he's in, he also invited us into smallness too. You, know, you think about Peter, you know, fishing all night and just trying to have a big catch. And Jesus like comes walking along the shore in a morning and Peter's like, yeah, what an awful night's fishing. It's just been awful. And Jesus like, hey, have you tried fishing on the other side of the boat? And um, have you ever worked like a job site with people who aren't sophisticated in their Christianity? Yeah, yes, Captain Obvious, I've worked the other side of the boat. Yes, I've fished on the other side of the boat. But Jesus says, Peter says, okay, yeah, because you said that, we'll do it. And then they get this huge catch. And then what happens after that? Peter comes running to shore and says, Lord, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. He's struck with his smallness. He's wowed by Jesus and struck by his smallness. So Jesus is inviting us into that too. He's inviting us to realize our place in relation to him, showing us that the glory is not in being served, but in dying to ourselves and serving others. I mean, some of us do not wanna go there. You mean I'm gonna die to my preferences and what I want? Well, don't you understand who I am? Jesus does way better than I do. He's the one inviting you there. You must decrease and he must increase. This is what he's inviting us into. And so some of us, the reason we resist this so much is because we're not in a relationship with God through Jesus. Um, And so it might be that the starting place for you is just to say, that's right. So much of my life is just centered on me. And I need to turn from that and believe in Jesus. And so... Again, we'll have an elder up front here after the service to talk to you. If you have more questions about what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus, or if you could talk to a Christian friend about that, we'd love to talk to you about that. Um, For many of us in this room, we are believers. We have a relationship with God, to Jesus. And maybe the application for us is just to remember the goodness of God. The goodness of God in coming after people in their hurt. This is who God is. I mean, this is God riding the waters like... The disciples are in the boat rowing in a contrary direction and making no headway. And here comes Jesus walking on the water saying, hey, look to me, look to me. Don't put your eyes on yourself. Don't put your eyes on your circumstances. Look to me. I mean, Peter has the boldness to say, hey, if you're really serious about this, call me into the water. Jesus says, come on. Takes his eyes off Jesus and starts to sink. You know, it's looking to Jesus, the goodness, Looking to a God who made us and who governs his creation in a way that is bewildering to us and we don't understand. And so, yes, look to him in your pain. I'm not trying to ignore Job's pain. I think there's gonna come a a second, uh, the second speech especially is gonna come to that pain. I don't think God's minimizing Job's pain. He's giving Job what he needs most and that's an accurate view of himself in relation to God. So look to him in your pain. And like Jesus said in his teaching, right, if God can figure out the wardrobe of the lilies in the field, is he not gonna care for you? I mean, if God can care about those things, he cares for you, he's shown it. He died for you, he rose for you. He's with you in this suffering, look to him. Look to him and know him, that we might make him known to others, glorifying and enjoying him forever.